is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. All right, folks. Uh, it was supposed to be me and uh, Britt Hartley today, and we were going to uh, talk about the top 10 reasons to stay, top 10 reasons to go. Uh, from Christianity or from your specific religious faith, but Britt had a uh, unexpected circumstance come up and she needed to step away from the show for the day. Uh, she'll be back next week doing solo as my wife and I will be out of town. Uh, so folks, uh, for those of you, this is the Almost Awakened podcast. Uh, I'm your one of your hosts, Bill Real. I'll be doing a solo show here today. I've got just a couple of stories to share, uh, thoughts to share. Thrive just happened this past weekend, and Thrive was amazing. For folks who are watching the show uh, live, feel free to let me know if you were at Thrive. I'd love to hear that. And uh, just been thinking about a lot of things. Somebody asked if I would uh, share my opening statement at Thrive, and I will try to put that on Facebook today as soon as this episode is over. I don't expect this episode to last long. Um, I, you know, again, Britton and I spoke about it, uh, either yesterday or the evening before. And so I've had a couple of days to kind of try to put something together. And there were three stories that I think all connect cause they're all connected by, uh, trauma. Um, but in how we all deal with whatever we deal with. And so here's my thoughts. My, my first thought of, in terms of a story, uh, I was folding clothes yesterday and, uh, laundry had piled up a little bit and, uh, I had taken a bunch of the clothes upstairs and started folding and my wife came home from work. And, uh, after she had a moment to kind of, kind of process work and settle down for a moment from coming home from that, she sat down with me and, and we folded laundry together. And it's such a strange thing <clears throat> in the first half of life. I was very much part of patriarchy meaning that I went to work every day from 8.30 to 5.30. I came home and I had this expectation in my head that, you know, my house should be clean, my dinner should be cooked, things should be, you know, ready for me to sit and enjoy the evening in, in, in all seriousness. And, you know, my wife was for the most part a stay-at-home mom and she did the majority of the raising of our kids. And as I've gotten to the point in the last couple of years, uh, I have really in our home taken upon a, a much greater role to the point where I do a lot of the housework myself. I do the dishes, I think, more than anyone else in our home. I do laundry more than anyone else, I think, in our home. There's a lot of duties that we split, but there's a lot of things that I take the majority of, of in part because I feel shame and guilt. Not that anyone gave me shame, but I feel shame and guilt for being a a shitty human being when it comes to what my expectations were. And I think most of the men in patriarchy get it too, by the way, it's this idea that in your head, well, it, what the way the perception works out in the world is that we, we think the women think the men 
are the ones working the hardest. And hence, this is how we split up the work in such a way that it's fair. But I, I think both the men and the women in our societies, and specifically those who are still living inside patriarchy, a patriarchy sort of home, I think the men know that when they go off to work, if it's a, you know, man goes to work, wife stays at home. And and in many cases, the wife goes off to work and she still does the majority of work at the house. But I think most men who go off to work realize they have the easier of the two responsibilities. And I think the women know they have the harder of the two responsibilities. And, uh, and hence it's, it's kind of this, because of privilege, it's kind of this nod, nod, wink, wink, both sides pretend that it's something other than what it is. And in recent years, I just, I'm just not going to tolerate that anymore. And I've apologized to my wife and anytime it comes up in a conversation, even if it's kind of out on the skirts of the conversation, I will speak directly to the point that I took advantage of patriarchy. I took advantage of privilege. I took advantage of the way our system works and the expectations it sets out and that I'm, I'm calling bullshit to that and am trying to live the back end of my life, making up for it uh, to some degree and certainly creating um, fairness and balance. And I think if my wife were here, she would, she would say that there, there's a, uh, that there's truth to that. And uh, we're folding towels so there's one, and I, it wasn't even a story I planned on telling, but we're folding towels and uh, folding clothes. And as I was folding one of the towels, it's a towel that my son got when he was eight years old for his baptism. And my, my mother-in-law, his grandmother, f- for his baptism, got him a white towel with his name printed on it. So he's got this white towel and it says his name's his first name, Zachary, but it says Zachary, his middle name, his last name. And uh, that towel, I was folding it and I set it down and I was just sitting back and I was thinking about it. You know, my, my kids are completely disconnected from the religious system that we came from. My, my four kids will never, it, it wouldn't matter what happens. It wouldn't matter if, um, you know, if, if president Nelson himself came and, apologize to the four of them for everything that the LDS church had done right to their face. They just, they know it's not true and they just would never ever step back into that church. But he has this towel that is uh, a remembrance of essentially that day his baptismal day and a remembrance of his uh, grandmother giving him that gift. Now his grandma's still alive and I'm actually going to write her when this episode is over and share some of these thoughts. But the thought that came into my head was that, and I haven't even asked him, is that I my assumption is that he cherishes that towel, that that towel is it is meaningful to him, that when he uses that towel to dry off after a shower, he sees his name on it, he knows it came from his grandmother, he knows it was a gift, it represents her love and concern and well wishes for him. And, and again, I'm going to ask him and see if that's the case, but that's my assumption. And I I imagine that because he disconnected from that religious system so early, that he has very little emotional trauma from from that towel being connected to his baptism and that he's never going to be Mormon ever again. 
And uh, I, I think that's interesting because I think when folks are young enough that they are, that they're able to disconnect from this thing. So the parent leaves the, the religious system, the parent stops the cycle there of this perpetuation of toxic perfectionism, this perpetuation of shame, this perpetuation of fear, and that the kid got very little of it. It's my understanding that that kid just is able to kind of disconnect it because at least, at least my youngest for sure, my two girls, maybe a little more, but also for the most part, able to disconnect from it without it weighing on them for the rest of their lives. My oldest boy, he is more interested in Mormonism because he was more uh, programmed into it, right? He was more uh, inoculated with all of its of its nonsense. And, and so he has a lot more impetus to, to be curious about it and still want to know what's going on there and to have a little bit of like, yeah, dad, go get them, you know? And, um, but my youngest, essentially none. It's not part of his memory, really. It's not part of his life. Again, we, we went inactive with lost belief around the age, his age of 11. We asked him at the time, because I had just been excommunicated. It was 2018. I'd just been excommunicated. My wife and my kids were all resigning online. He didn't want to go through the process. Um, but my understanding is that, you know, he has so little of Mormonism that influences him. Other than here we are in Southern Utah and he goes to school with a bunch of Latter-day Saint kids. But even there, he acknowledges that this doesn't really, this doesn't really, um, this really isn't part of his life. It really isn't part of uh, his perception as he goes to school every day. And so my wife and I, we've been married in the Washington, D.C. temple. That's where we got married. We were sealed in the temple by Mormon rhetoric for time and all eternity. And I've gotten rid of everything in our home that connects us to that building that Washington edifice. Um, but we have one thing left in our home and it's because uh, her sister gave it to us as a gift. And so it has meaning to us in terms of her sister, my sister-in-law. And it's been interesting to watch how Mormon artifacts, if you were to see my home, in fact, I'll show you one little thing here. So uh, right there. So I've got a little corner there of stuff. There are a few other things in my room that are, are Mormon as well. I, I keep the letter that elder Holland sent me just, just as a reminder of how people can portray themselves on the front end. Uh, but their dishonesty and deceptiveness, you don't always see things in the beginning. And so it's always this kind of reminder to trust, but verify, which is something my wife has taught me over the years. And I think it's a really healthy way to handle skepticism, which is to trust but verify. But these Mormon artifacts, I look at them every day and I find them interesting. I'm not, uh, I'm not bothered by them. They're not, they don't trigger me. I'm not, I'm not having any, any emotional feelings with them. And so my son does the same thing. Like this towel is meaningful to him. Again, I assume. 
And so I just thought that was an interesting story about things that connect to your religious system that you came from, but how all of us still have certain mementos. And those mementos often have more meaning than the direct connection. And that many of us likely still keep things around because they connect us to people we love or experiences we had memories that we hold and they still have positive benefit and value so there's the first one the second one was i was last night uh laying in bed and watching a, a documentary on youtube called the meaning of life i'll put it up here on the on the screen um so the meaning of life this was a, a 18 minute really short video of this 97 year old man he he spent his professional career as a philosopher and author. He wrote books on lots of philosophical subjects, and one of his books was on the subject of death. And it, I, I won't repeat the things he said, but I, I think the 18 minutes is very much worth somebody's time. But he, 97 years old, he can barely get out of bed, um, a some sort of assistant nursing assistant or something comes to help him some sort of assistant comes in every day and helps him get his socks on and helps him you know they rub, rub lotion on his legs to to help things stay as healthy as possible make sure he takes his medicine but he's a smart guy and he's sitting there communicating to the audience how fearful he is of death and it, it made me think there's this weird thing when you when you're come out of a religion the people in the religion think that the belief in an afterlife is comforting, that gives you the ability to not worry about death. And believers think that when you don't have that, that you're going to be much more paralyzed by death. And I just don't think that's true. And I don't and I don't think it's false in the way that maybe the audience is hearing me at the moment. I'm certainly not saying that being atheist relieves me of all of that worry. My hunch is that I kind of feel the same amount of worry now as I did then. And I think we all recognize this in that religious believers who feel like they are doing what God wants them to do and believe in an afterlife, most of them don't want to die and want to prolong life as long as possible, just as much as an atheist. In other words, I don't think it's something that you can avoid getting away from. And uh, as they showed the documentary of this 97-year-old man, they lead into the later part of the story in the 18 minutes where he shares that his wife and him had just the most incredible marriage, and they deeply loved uh, each other. And there was video footage of him and her walking. There were photos of them when they were younger. There was a video of them when they were younger doing something. But then there were th this video footage of them 15 years ago, you know, walking with canes and kind of hunched over with their backs and just kind of making their way down the sidewalk or up the steps. 
And you could just sense it. Like here, these two had spent their entire life together. He said almost 70 years, I think. And they had spent their entire life together and she was gone and she had been gone like 15 years. And in my head, I'm like, he's 97 years old and he lost his wife 15 years ago. You And there's, you know, you would think that he would be at a point in his own timeline where he wouldn't really care if today was his last day. But you can see him sitting at the dining room table and he is panicking. He is scared of death. He does not want it to come. His From his calf on down, his legs are purple and swollen. You can just see that the body gets older and it starts to age. And uh, I look at myself. I'm 44 years old. And when I was in my 30s, I still felt like I'm sort of invincible. Uh, and your 20s and your teens, I mean, you're just, you're going to live forever. But the older you get, you realize how fast time is flying by. Like the passage of time is relative. I remember being, you know, a 10-year-old kid. I remember the days would last forever. And the school year would last forever. And then summer break would last forever. And Saturday morning cartoons would last forever. Everything lasted forever. Tell you another cool story. I don't know if I ever shared this on the podcast just because I mentioned Saturday morning cartoons. My dad, who's still alive, my mom's passed away. But my dad, who's still alive, one of the really cool things he uh, did for me and my brother. My brother is four years younger than me. When we were little kids and we were really poor, we lived on a little dead-end street. Every Friday night, and I can see probably he had his own motive, which was to allow him and my mom to you know, sleep in on Sunday or Saturday mornings. But my dad on Friday night would get the TV guide out, and he'd sit down with me and my brother, and he'd say, okay, guys, let's help you figure out what you want to watch on Saturday because we love Saturday morning cartoons. So he would say, okay, what time do you guys want to be up in the morning? You're going to be up at, let's say seven. Okay. You're going to be up at seven at 7. AM. Here's the, you know, here's the 22 channels that TV has, by the way, for folks who are younger, my parents had a Curtis Mathis television, big TV. And then the box that kind of held the TV was even bigger. And it had an internal speaker with a fuzzy cover to it. That was made out of like Brown cloth. Curtis Mathis was like the last brand of TVs made inside the United States. And this Curtis Mathis uh, television uh, had like uh, 13 channels, just little buttons for one through 13. And I think it was actually two through 13. And, and then my parents had cable, the cable box, but you only got like so many more channels with that when that first came out. And so my parents would say, Hey, what do you want to watch? So seven o'clock, my dad would go, okay, here's what's on. The Smurfs are on. Uh, He-Man's on uh, Tom and Jerry. Which one do you want to watch? And we'd pick. And he would he would circle it with a pen, you know, along its entire. Uh, so the way the TV guide was set up was each day, um, you get one, you get a TV guide each week, and each day of the week there would be like the hours at the top. And then down below would be the programs and they'd be blocked out for their length of time they last. 
And so you could see everything that was on at that time period. You could see how long it lasted. And then you could see what you could watch next when that ended. And my dad would circle all of these cartoons. So seven to eight, you're going to watch the Smurfs. Okay, at eight o'clock, here's your choices. That one's only a half an hour. That's what we picked. What do you want to watch next? And so we'd have from seven till, you know, 2 p.m. We'd have our shows that we were going to watch circled. And uh, I just thought it was this amazing thing my dad did to just sit with his boys and to help them plot out how to best use their time on Saturday to be able to watch everything they wanted to and to know what channel to change it to, to get the, to get the next show. And anyway, I just, it's just one of those things that you think about, but I'm 44 years old and I still feel young in my head. I still feel like sort of like a 25 year old kid. And I say kid because I think, um, 18 is this weird arbitrary number that we decide someone is an adult, but 25 years old is kind of how I feel in my head, but I'm 44. And I think about death and not like I get depressed or anything. And I know some folks out there, you do. But if I'm watching a TV show and some violent uh, death occurs to somebody, you know, like we're watching Vikings uh, right now, my, my wife and I. But if you're watching Breaking Bad or 24 or Ozark or, and you see some violent death occur on the screen, I can't help but go inside my head and kind of contemplate my own death. And I'm not so worried about being dead. The, the only negative for me there is I feel like I've had this incredible life. This incredible, my childhood was phenomenal. The experiences I had as a child, I think, were phenomenal. The, uh, the way my life unfolded, and, and then in 2012 to have started this podcast stuff and to have watched it do what it has done and the opportunities it has presented for me and my family. You know, one of the things we did, for instance, is uh, uh, we had the chance to eat dinner one night at um, Dan Reynolds' uh, parents' home. Dan Reynolds, the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. There's another member of the Reynolds family that is a, a friend of mine. And uh, in my friendship with him, he invited me to spend an evening with his brother, Dan, and with their family. I had the chance to interact with uh, Tyler Glenn for a little bit here or there. Um, to, to be able to go places, to speak to crowds, to be able to be helpful to the degree that this podcast work has been, to see, you know, to get up every day to do a job that people every day thank you for changing their life and to helping them uh, in processing uh, religious trauma and being able to make a, to make a break from it and to be able to make new informed choices has really been a fun way to spend the last decade. And even if you take the last decade away, I've really been happy with the life that I've lived from my birth until now. Uh, a lot of sports as a kid. My dad was very involved with us and played sports with us and the other kids in the neighborhood on, on the weekends. My mom was always really involved, lots of hikes and things. But my mom passed away, 59 years old, passed away in 2019 from cancer. I did an episode on that. And one of the most, it's one of the episodes I'm most proud of I've ever done 
in this podcast work. It's on the Almost Awakened podcast. I think it was titled something like Mom and the Dying. And and I'll just say, as I think and contemplate about death, I'm, I'm recognizing how fast time flies now. It absolutely is flying by. And I can only imagine for those in this audience who are 55 or 65 or 75, I have to imagine that that rate of speed actually continues on and on and on and on. And uh, that, it, in other words, that it picks up and it goes faster and faster. And the moment I hit 40 years old, I just realized like, oh, I'm not invincible. Oh, this, this fun experience will come to an end. And like I said, I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm, I'm really afraid of this unique life experience that is me, the consciousness behind my eyes that has experienced what it has, that's read the books that it has, that has thought the thoughts that it has, that has enjoyed the the moments and experiences that it has, that that just vanishes. It just vanishes, and then there isn't any way to download it. You can write your memoir. You can you can leave behind podcast episodes, you know, which I hope last a long, long time. But you can't exactly download it. And so you're left with you, whatever makes you, you, it just comes to a close. It just ends. And so being dead is a little frustrating. You won't be able to be frustrated about it. You'll be dead. But as I contemplated on the front end, it, it feels frustrating to have your unique consciousness end. And, and human beings are fighting so hard for uh, some sort of legacy because we all kind of sense that physically it ends. So maybe in the way in which we have an impact or influence that those things can, we can create a legacy that will allow a piece of us to go much further then what would happen if we didn't leave a legacy? And so folks, folks think like, well, no, it's the difference you make in the world. And, and, and there is, it is true. Like whatever, however you live your life, the ripples of that will affect 50 generations from now, though they won't know it, but you'll treat your kid a certain way and raise them to think a certain way. They'll raise their kid with some of what you did impacting that. Then your grandkid will raise their kid with some degree of how you impacted your kid and he passed it along. And so, yes, like 10 generations out, there's some effect that you have, like the ripple does keep going and going, but it's also frustrating that you'll raise your kids. And let's say you're just beautiful at it. When you die, your kids will grieve But they, but they probably don't grieve to some magnitude that it's not that they can't carry it. In other words, they'll grieve. But like for me and my mom, we have a a painting downstairs of her that my daughter in law and the rest of my kids put together, uh, kind of a bigger gift, and so they paid an artist an art company to paint my mom. And it's really good. They really capture, the painting really captures my mom's essence. 
if I can say it that way. Like I look at that painting and I go, there you are, mom. Like I just walked by today and said, I, I love you, mom. And see, now I'm tearing up, but I don't cry every day. Even when it happened, I didn't cry every day. So maybe once every couple of months, I'll think about my mom in an emotional way or talk to my mom's painting and I'll connect in a way that brings tears to my eyes. But it's not overwhelming and I pick and choose when I do it for the most part. I was on a drive a couple weeks ago where we picked up one of our friends and he had just lost his dad a few months ago. And so I initiated a conversation with him where I kind of, you know, allowed a space for us both to be kind of vulnerable about how hard that was. So you pick your moments. So as a kid, it hurts and, and you cry from time to time, but the pain of that sort of diminishes and, uh, and your grandkids, like, like her grandkids, my mom's grandchildren, sure, they cried when it happened. And sure, every once in a while, once a year or something, they'll join in that space with me and they'll shed some tears and we'll talk about grandma. But they're having an easier time with it than I have. And then, and then, her grandchild, her great grandchildren, my grandkids, her great grandchildren, at best, they might barely know you. And by the time you get to great great grandchildren, they have no clue who you are. You are just an old photo of some person they don't have any ability to relate to. And they won't shed a single tear for that person having lived their life. And uh, I can see these moments. You know, I, I love dearly my wife and our relationship. I, uh, if, if I lose my wife at some point and 15 years have gone by and I'm 97 years old, like I, I, I struggle in my 44-year-old mind to comprehend what it would mean what it would mean to fear death in that moment. And, uh, but this man fears death. He doesn't want to go. And I thought the documentary just deeply interesting. What I do fear is the act of dying. I fear, um, I fear those last three minutes because I think for some of us, it is maybe a peaceful way to go. And for some of us, I, I don't think it is. I think it will be very traumatic. And, and I don't think whatever good life you've lived, that if those three last minutes are horrible or horrific, I don't think you're going to be glad for the life you've had. At least that's my fear. I think all you'll be able to think about in that moment is how horrific that moment is. Especially if you're working on how, how to be present and still with moments as they're unfolding right in front of you, which is a practice. And you only get to die once. So part of me wants to sit with it, taking it all in exactly the way it's happening and to be present with it and aware of it as much as one possibly can be. 
And so that I find that interesting. But this idea of fearing, fearing death. Um, let me see here if I can pull up one more thing. There's one other thing I wanted to chat about. Um, so anyway, I, I'd be curious, folks, if you if you think those kinds of things. Um, if you think about that kind of stuff, and you know, there are comments, for instance, you're you are unlikely to be aware of much when you die. And I think for a lot of people, that's very true. But if it's a heart attack or a stroke, if it's, you know, some horrible thing, I, I think to some extent you might. Somebody asked if does experiencing psilocybin cause you to change your idea of death? It certainly pushed me into a space to be a little more aware of it. Again, I don't get plagued by it. I go throughout my day. I'm fairly happy. I get up on the right side of the bed. I have a moment or two, maybe a month, where I experience for an hour or two or maybe half a day at most, a little bit of depression, a little bit of anxiety. It has increased a little bit over time, um, but I don't find it to be overly connected to whether I was a believer in the past or a, or a atheist today. But I certainly think that uh, experiences with conscious altering tools does change your idea of death. And in fact, the research has been done that when folks have terminal illnesses, if they will do a trip with conscious altering tools, they seem in a much healthier way to make peace with their oncoming uh, death and can now live fully taking advantage of each day, even though it's coming. In other words, you get a terminal illness, you've got three months to live, and you fear it every day. You just experience anxiety. My mom was that way. She was had brain cancer. We knew it was going to kill her. There, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. That unless she died from something else before it took its full wrath, she was going to die of brain cancer. And she did not want to talk about it. She just wanted to pretend it wasn't there. She kept on working right up until the end. Because I, I can't imagine. Can you imagine having a terminal illness and, and your brain wanting you to focus on it? The amount of anxiety and stuff you'd feel. And hence, I think the best thing to do is to sort of ignore it and live your life. And that it isn't helpful to talk about it. And yet people around you want to talk it out. They want to make sure that, you know, that they let you know they love you and all of that. But maybe you can do that without talking specifically about the oncoming thing. But yes. Um, and, and, I, and by the way, I, I welcome these conversations. If any of you are down in Southern Utah and you, this is the kind of conversation you want to have, I'm more than happy to sit in this with you. And folks, I, I would just say that too. Like, if you're ever out this way, uh, the reels are more than happy to go to dinner. I know that Britt feels that way up in Idaho. Uh, I know that other podcasters in our umbrella, I know the Mounts, for instance, with Marriage on a Tightrope, reach out uh, with their listeners and get together in lots of different settings to talk to each other and get to know each other. And so, I mean, it. folks go like, oh, he's just saying that. Um, he probably is so busy. We shouldn't bother him. And, and sure, like we're all busy, but I really do enjoy meeting with 
other good human beings and having vulnerable conversations around the hard things of life, around the taboo, around, uh, you know, again, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, except in my case, it's reggae. And uh, death is coming for all of us. We can't escape it. And I often think this other thought too, which is we, we bring children into the world. And really the idea of bringing children in is this evolutionary programming in our head that we need to perpetuate our own DNA, our own, not just the species of humans, but our own DNA that we want to have children for the privilege of being able to pass along our genetics and a piece of ourselves, right? Like my kids look a little bit like me and they get to hear my memory of things so that my, my, my best stories get to be retold somewhere. Um, that, that I leave this earth, but there are still, still people around who are part of me and who love me. And yet I sometimes wonder with how messy life can be that if, if it really is a positive thing to bring children into this world, knowing the gamut of things they could endure and some of them certainly will. Like again, most of us in the United States, I think, have a, the opportunity to have a decent life. And even in that, there are tons of people who suffer from depression and anxiety, mental illness, one bad tragic event after another sometimes for those on the really bad side of what could happen. And so I often think about like, is bringing somebody into this world, did we do them a favor or didn't we? And so I think about that as well. The, uh, the last story I wanted to talk about, and again, we've gone about 40 minutes now. We won't, we won't, we'll wrap this up here sort of quick and we'll get you out of here within a, maybe an hour show. But uh, this is a article that I posted on Facebook today, but that there's a mass exodus from Christianity, a mass exodus from Christianity is underway in America. Here's why. And it's this idea of the nuns, but they call them something different in this. They call them the nonverts. And they're saying that sociologists call them nonverts. I've never heard that term before. Uh, for those folks at The Grid, I think that's the name of this paper, The Grid. For folks at The Grid, I would be very curious why you chose to use that word that I think very few people have ever heard when most people in this space seem to call them the nuns. But that uh, they estimate by 2070, Christians will be a minority of Americans uh, if the current trends continue. And I find that just to be interesting. It, it's interesting because the American churches seem to not want to really face the music. They, they want to keep pretending that if they just do things the way they're doing them, that this will turn around and things will go fine. That if Mormonism makes a few little changes over here, but continues to have a patriarchy leadership that acts unethically and deceptively and 
seeks to obscure or obfuscate uh, the problems so that people can't find them and acts as though everything is going to be just fine. I just don't think it's going to be. And um, and by the way, somebody just said, JC says, I think Nemo interviewed uh, the study's author and he explained nonverts there. So check out Nemo. Um, the American church seems to think if it just keeps doing the status quo, it'll be fine. And I don't know that there's an answer. I don't know that changing your theology or apologizing for all the wrongs you've done and writing the ship by a, by being accountable and making changes so as to not do the bad things you did before ever again, I don't know that that fixes the problem either. And so they're probably stuck between a rock and a hard place. But it does strike me that lots of folks are leaving religion to become non-religious or at the very least not attach their religiosity to a congregation or a specific belief system. And, you know, folks are much more tinkering around with the woo, which is what Britt and I called it when we did an episode talking about like tarot cards and astrology and Reiki. And again, I don't mean any offense. If you believe those things to be legitimate, um, I don't know that you're wrong. I always tell people I know what it's not. I know it's not Mormonism. I know it's not Scientology. I know it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, I know it's not a flat earth. I know it's not uh, Bigfoot. But I don't know what it is. And I think the folks who are the wisest in the spaces of communicating wisdom within spiritual slash, slash religious themes, those folks seem to know not to get so close as to label it and define it. They seem to be tiptoeing around the edges of it. And I think the folks who name it are the, it's the clearest way to know that they don't know what it is. And the folks who seem to uh, tiptoe around the edges of it seem to indicate to me that they have the greatest understanding of what it is, but because it is unknowable, they can't quite get any closer than that. They know better than to step closer. And so as folks are leaving Christianity or leaving religion generally, uh, it is interesting to see this happen. You see the graph here, 1975 to 1990. The, excuse me, folks, the, the, the number of non-religious actually goes down just a tiny bit. It's like religion is on a slow burn to win. But starting in the early 90s, something changes, and I can tell you what it is. It's the internet. But something changes, and because you really can almost coordinate that 1991 date with uh, Gateway Computers and America Online. You know, you've got mail, right? And so for folks who are older, they'll clearly remember that. My parents bought a gateway computer and my dad's solution for everything was Control-Alt-Delete. And you can just see that, that the internet, the access to information 
has caused that line to, instead of being a slow burn down, to be a drastic slope up. Uh, it is quite impressive. And what it says is that the access to information isn't good for religion. And you can see it there as simply as anything. Um, anyway, I thought that was quite, quite interesting. Um, they talk about the move to secularism, Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers, the silent generation. And you can note whatever you want to note there. I'm not necessarily going to talk about that. But the the what I come to grips with is that we're going to have to, as Britt uh, talks about all the time on this podcast, we're going to have to come up with a way, and it could be a thousand ways, in order to provide a spiritual framework that still acts as a similar vehicle that religion did without without all the fear and shame and false beliefs. We're going to have to create spiritual systems that are able to pass on the technology and the tools that the vehicle of religion did. And so whether it's rituals, whether it's uh, giving people transcendence, which I think is actually the easier of all the things to get, uh, in fact, give me two seconds here, and I will <clears throat> pull up my Thrive Talk, which I talked about what things that religion gives us. And um, it's like it's like seven to 11 things. I can't remember the exact number, but let me pull it up, and uh, we can just mention each of these. And oop, wrong one. Two seconds, folks. Sorry about that. And we'll talk about these kind of for just a moment, and then we'll end the show. By the way, folks, go uh, if you're not part of our TikTok channel, go to Mormon Discussion on TikTok. Follow us there. If you're not subscribers to our YouTube channel, we would deeply love if you would uh, be a subscriber on our YouTube channel. We've experienced quite a bit of dynamic growth the last three or so months. Uh, a lot of that's due to the shorts over the last few weeks, YouTube shorts and TikToks. Now, those have been really helpful. But here's the things that uh, religion acts as a vehicle to to um, to carry to the next generation. You have story, community, awe and transcendence, art, music, encouragement to serve, and opportunities to be in service. And you may you may think to yourself like, oh, I can just you know go serve wherever. Religion does this beautiful job of obligating you to some level, telling you that if you're going to be a good person, this is what you need to do. And it's to go serve, go serve your community, you know, drop off a casserole, whatever it is. And we need opportunities to be in service. There's plenty out there, but it was certainly much easier for us when it was our local congregation and somebody we loved and cared about that we attended church with every week needed help moving. It made service easy. And, and so we need to kind of shift how we think about these things. It provided mentors. It provided inspirational messages. It provided leaders that could impart wisdom. And, uh, and again, not that they did a great job of it, 
but it's the idea or the goal of what religion can pass along. Structure, ritual, meaning, and purpose. And uh, those are the things. And so stories, you know, we can we can use Sapiens, for instance, from Yuval Harari as a way to frame story. We can certainly see the creative energy of the universe and all of the cool things that have happened that led to, you know, our star known as the sun being created, how planet Earth got here, how various life forms began and evolved into what we are today. Um, but certain things are really hard to get. Community is a really tough one to get without being part of a religious system. And it really is a lot of hard work to find a community that you feel you belong. On transcendence, I think, is an easy one. Uh, you can listen to Alan Watts talks or read a Brene Brown book or, or uh, go listen to something Eckhart Tolle said. And I think you can feel awe and transcendence. I feel awe and transcendence every week, no doubt, multiple times a week. And I would almost say daily. Uh, art and music, I have no problem filling my life with music. That gets easy enough in our day's age. Uh, art, I have plenty of art in my life. I, I think I find ways in which to incorporate objects in which meaning has been attributed by others or which I attribute to I think that's easy enough. Encouragement to serve and opportunities to be in service. I think that's way harder than it was when I was in a religious system going to a congregational meeting every week. Uh, mentors, inspirational messages, uh, leaders that impart wisdom. I think those are also relatively easy. Structure and ritual, I think, is one that's much harder. Um, especially knowing, I think we did a conversation about Elaine de Botton, his YouTube talk, Atheism 2.0. And we talked about ritual because in that, uh, Mr. de Botton talked about ritual and how it connects us to the universe, that there are these holidays in religious systems that point us to look at the moon and point us to pause and think about our neighbor and to pause and think about forgiveness or being forgiven to cause us to pause and to think about what it is about our own life that needs changing. I think these things can also be a little more difficult. You really have to have much more intention, uh, but you can do it. I mean, if you go like, look, uh, once a year, I'm going to read the four agreements. And once a year, I'm going to listen to these three videos from Alan Watts. And once a year, I'm going to read this book from Brene Brown. Like, I think you can put those things sort of back in. But we really need ways in which that we get together with our community and we collectively agree, which is what a, what a, what a, community, a community ritual is, right? We collectively agree that we're going to all do something. We're all going to sit and look at the moon and meditate for 20 minutes. And then we can talk about what that meant for us. Um, and then meaning and purpose. And this is a tough one because this was handed to you. And now the guru, as Kumari says, the guru's inside of you. You get to figure out what this life means, what this universe means, and what your purpose is. And I'm simply noting that, that there are things that religion uh, gives us that helped us to be more connected to the outer world and inner world. It also done a 
did a ton of unhealthy things, passed along a ton of trauma, imparted a ton of shame and fear and uh, repression in lots of facets of our life. But it also gave us things that, that we do need as technology to be able to stay connected as a human race. And we, we need to sort, sort of at least consider all of that. And so anyway, my, my thoughts today through all these stories is that there's plenty of religious trauma out there. And there's plenty of just human trauma out there. And life isn't always pleasant or easy. Um, but, but I hope through these stories, you can kind of sense like there's kinds of different ways in which we can deal with the stuff that goes on. The other thing was I was, I was at Thrive and I was in a conversation with somebody. And I don't even remember who it was I was conversating with, but they were talking about their trauma. And I think I might remember, but um, we, and if it is, it was the, the couple I was out to dinner with um, Friday night. But it was a discussion about how religious systems manipulate you with a limited perspective of it and a limited amount of information. And you're essentially brainwashed because it's the only view you know to think that your system's right. And so you compromise so many parts of yourself and some of them are so deeply harmful to you. And when you go to finally get a therapist and to work out this stuff and to process what happened to you, your, your therapist might encourage you to take these things back. And in this particular person's instance, they're like, I can't take it back. I mean, they took it from me. And the therapist was like, no, like you gave it, you get to take it back. And I've been thinking about that for a few days here that in reality, the therapist is right. People do lots of shitty things to you. Um, I think it's a third of women report being abused during their life. You can bet your ass that there's more than that. There's a significant number of women who don't report it. Um, but a third of women report being abused. If you do a survey and you say, hey, has this? have you been abused in some way? And a third of women report it. But there are some that just don't answered it. They don't say that that's happened. And it's less for men. It's uh, like 20% or so. But but of course, that's also higher. There's a lot of uh, pressure on men not to say such things too. And so both numbers are certainly higher than what's reported. Um, there's lots of bad things that happen to us human beings. And we we certainly had these things imposed on us. There's no arguing that. But I also think there's value in recognizing that you also gave some things away and the things that you're screaming inside emotionally that you can't get over. Um, I think there's a value to seeing that it, you gave it away and that you get to take it back. And um, I, I, I would just want to end the episode just acknowledging that being a human being and having a human experience is difficult. You know, we used to think there was a bearded man in the sky and he's the one who established all these rules and there's right and wrong and there's good and there's evil. And, um, and hence, life is organized. There is order. There is... Um, a, a rule book by which we play this game 
and hence everything will be will receive justice and mercy in the end to some degree that balances the scales and the reality is it's just molecules and energy bouncing off each other in various forms and it's complete and utter chaos and we tell ourselves it's organized and it has meaning but it really is just chaos and it certainly gets more complex and it certainly gets uh more conscious because for whatever reason that's the, the direction evolution went and now we're all on this ride so um things will continue to adapt and things will continue to become more complex it seems from simple to complex is the trajectory of uh i'm just looking at one of the one of the comments um it certainly is a trajectory of evolution to go from simple forms of life to more complex forms of life and i'm sure that process will continue if we humans don't destroy all of it first and if we're honest someday this earth won't be here and someday this galaxy won't be here and someday this universe won't be here and if you look at pictures from the james webb telescope of way out in space especially those pictures that show thousands of stars thousands of stars you also recognize like the universe isn't that concerned with you now you are the universe again Eckhart Tolle, you're you are the universe expressing yourself as a human for a little while you are stardust but at the same moment here you are on a rock sailing through space in a rock too to some degree i was listening to neil degrasse tyson last night but you're in a rock flying through space at millions of miles per hour and uh, you think your life has so much meaning. You're sitting here and you're worried about what Putin thinks about Biden, what Biden thinks about uh, China, what China thinks about uh, Taiwan, what Taiwan is worried about this. And the reality is in the scope of the entire universe, none of it matters. Like the rest of the universe could care less what happens on this little dot called Earth. And we're all just fighting with each other and it's absurd. And we think these mo this is all so important, but it, it isn't. It isn't. Um, what is important is whatever human connection and whatever suffering you can, whatever human connection you feel and experience and whatever suffering you can reduce so that somebody isn't hurting in this moment or in the next one. And um, so I don't care what, you believe but i think the buddhist principle of reducing suffering is something that i would want folks who are working towards being more and more almost awakened to really have as an emphasis in their life folks uh i'll end it here if uh, by all means Brittany will be back next week by all means it is huge for us to have donations. I have to say it a lot. I know I say it a lot. For those who support this program, thank you very much. We went from, we collected about 300 bucks two years ago, 2021. We collected about $7,000 last year for the Almost Awakened podcast. That's what we raised. My goal this year would be to get Brittany Hartley to about $15,000. 
in income coming in towards the podcast. And we give her a significant chunk of that. Uh, she gets way more than half of that money. And so folks, I'm just going to ask if you would please go to almostawaken.org. Heather, by the way, I just saw your $5 super sticker. Thank you very, very much. That's very much appreciated. Folks, go to almostawaken.org. Click the donate button. If you would set up a recurring donation, that would mean so much to us. It doesn't matter to me what, $5 a month, 10 bucks a month. If you can do more, great. We have donors who do 20 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month and a few that do 100 bucks a month. But folks, uh, what matters is that you join our team and you're part of this work. And as we grow and get bigger, which the growth from two years ago to last year and last year to this year uh, has been phenomenal. Um, folks, if, be the part of the team. Be part of the Almost Awakened team. Be part of the Mormon Discussion Incorporated team. Help us continue to put content out that helps people not only deconstruct, but also think new thoughts on the second half of life that will help them to be better, more healthy human beings. I really appreciate, folks, each of you, the, the folks, you know, the people I know that are in this community, the folks that watch these shows and listen, I, I, I feel a friendship with you and you make my life meaningful and I hope that our work makes yours more meaningful. Uh, otherwise, this has been another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Check out our YouTube channel. We just now got our store approved. So uh, if you go to our Mormon Discussion Incorporated YouTube channel, click the store. You'll now see shirts that you can purchase with the show's logos. One of those shirts is the Almost Awakened podcast. We also uh, are in the mix of trying to get some of our other merch onto that shop, including coffee mugs and things like that. Uh, but folks, uh, again, you mean a lot to me and I'm really grateful for the chance to get up every day and to find ways to speak to you uh, uh, and to reach out and connect with you and to hopefully be a benefit to your life. Have an awesome day. Think the the world of of, of this space. It's just so much fun to to give people ideas and things to think about that are post-Mormon and post-religious. And I wish all of you guys a great weekend and I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Have a great day. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.